welcome to Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Mark Carrigan about his work as a Chartered Institute of Fundraising trainer and drill into his expertise of fundraising to help us understand why training is so vital and how it can be open to everyone, regardless of their background and budget. Mark and I met while studying for an advanced international diploma in fundraising a few years ago, and we speak about this experience and how it has helped us since. Inevitably, I take Mark off on a few tangents, but thankfully his expertise and intelligence turn these meanderings into something very worthwhile. I'm sure that you will all enjoy this conversation and take a lot from it. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People, So without further ado, here is Mark Carrigan speaking with me about the value of training. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Carrigan, Managing Director of Carrigan Consulting, expert in high-value philanthropy, fundraising and trainer for the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Mark, welcome to Charity Chat. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. Great to be here. It's great having you. So, Mark, what is your background and what training have you had that you most valued? Gosh, how long have you got, Sam? (laughs) Well, I suppose a brief whirlwind of my highlights, for me at least, in terms of the training that I've most valued. When I left school, I went straight into a bachelor's degree in business administration. Mm -hmm. And from there, skipped straight into working with Morgan Stanley and Deutsche Bank, that would be top-tier financial institutions on on an international level. And despite the three years that I had uh, in the bachelor's, Mm -hmm. there was actually a lot of on-the-job learning. And both, thankfully, both banks were really good at investing in their people. Mm -hmm. And not just in relation to the particular job you're doing, but uh, at the time, a, a much broader set of skills that would serve you over time and over your career. And they really focused on helping you to realize your full potential in that respect. So even though I was just a junior junior analyst, Mm. uh, the training that they gave me was everything from working in Excel and relationship management through to project management, negotiation and presentation skills. So I think these four years of not literally nonstop training gave me an invaluable foundation of knowledge from, from which to build. So then when I moved from finance into fundraising and into the not-for-profit world, mm-hmm. I was very lucky to have several great mentors, including first off, Jonathan Braniff, who taught me pretty much everything there was to know at the time about running capital campaigns. And then after that, uh, Martin Kaufman and Bill Connor, who gave me a super foundation in high value, major giving, corporate work. And of course, also John Kelly, who gave me a really valuable insight into just organization strategy and management overall. But despite all of that great training and mentorship, I actually think the training I value most today is the education I received from Adrian Sargent and Jen Chang, mm-hmm. and particularly while on the Chartered Institute uh, Fundraising's International Advanced Diploma. There's a mouthful for you. This transformed the way really that I 
looked at everything, looked at fundraising, looked at the world, and it gave me a much better framework with which to utilize the knowledge that I'd already acquired and accumulated that I've just referred to. And so that would really be what I value most. And certainly for me now, it's even more so I realize how vital it is for me to keep my knowledge up to date, both as a consultant and as a trainer. And one of the things I love most about my work is that I'm continually learning both from clients and interactions with clients and with students. I often feel I learn just as much. And that's that's the interesting point, I think, because it's that having that learning mindset, isn't it? Where I and I guess on a, on a human level, you know, where we can kind of take the good and the bad experiences that we've had and try and look at them through the lens of a learning opportunity. I know that sounds really corny or cheesy, but um, I think that's, that's not at all. That's true though. Right. I mean, the, you know, certainly completely, you know, and it's, it's a good way of kind of, uh, of dealing with uh, some of the negative emotions that come out of uh, failing, for example. And, and uh, for sure. So. And that's, if you listen to any of the, real leaders in their sector right across technology to automotive finance and anything else and they are constantly asked what is it you look for in your your people what is the mm. the one thing that you you really value in and recognize as a trait of good people it is that that cont- desire to continually learn and your points i'm spot on in terms of if you are a continual learner if you adopt that mindset the failures are not failures. They're learnings that will enable you to get it right or improve the next time. In your, your background, dealing with high net worth individuals, now you're talking to people who are potentially very, very good at making money. And, and then you're, mm-hmm. you're coming to them with a proposition um, many propositions to support a charity to do more good and so in those kind of conversations is it is there a kind of a difficulty sometimes in giving advice to somebody who's very good at making money to then put that money into something that's that's not necessarily going to generate more money but it's going to generate some kind of an impact a widely used word isn't it um, but but some kind of bigger impact it, it is in that you mean your, your question is a good one, Sam, and you, you identify two key areas. First off is their faith in what you're going to deliver, but even before that, their faith in you. Mm. And that, that applies as a consultant with your clients and then trusting you to do the right work and, and that you're going to do help them as be, be as good as they need to be. Mm. With your students, it's a question of, are they learning the right thing? Are you going to help them get the qualification that they need that's going to advance their career? Mm. Or are you leading them down the garden path in any one of those types of relationships? And so trying to emulate or trying to show that you are the expert can be a double-edged sword. And Mm. so I've always adopted the notion of, That quote, I'm sure it has been attributed to many people, but that quote, the notion that you know enough to know how little you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I've always adopted that attitude that I believe at least I've been doing this for long enough that I have a pretty good knowledge of the subject. Mm. But I also know not only if we were frozen in time, there is a, a wide bank of information and data and knowledge that I'm not aware of. There's also it now, if we unfreeze time, 
a incredible amount of information nowadays being generated on an ongoing basis of new practices, new learnings, better ways of doing things. And so I think we have to almost redefine this notion of expert being all knowing, and it is somebody who has the ability to get to the knowledge or source the knowledge that is going to make the most uh, appropriate decisions. And that, that is the approach that I will take with clients and with students. Certainly, if a student asks me a question, I will say I, that I don't know the answer to. I will say that I don't, but I'll get back to you on it and I'll, I'll find that information for you. Similarly, with a client, we'll say, well, look, we've done that 20 times. We know how that works. We know all the variables. We know the pitfalls and we can run with that no problem. And we're prepared for, for all of that. Whereas if we haven't done something before, we, we can plot it out, plan it, and be prepared to manage the risks and the unforeseen, as inevitably will be the case, as that arises. I always aim to build trust, and I try to build trust by being authentic and by being sincere to the person. So Mark, you and I met while studying for the Chartered Institute of Fundraising's International Advanced Diploma in Fundraising. That's a, as you said before, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so you're now teaching this course. Can you talk a little bit about how this course helped you in your career and the types of people you're now teaching this course to? Yes, uh, of course, Sam. So the for an abbreviation, IADF, for the International Advanced Diploma in Fundraising, is the highest level of four certified professional development courses that are currently available from the Chartered Institute. Mm -hmm. The first level, just briefly, is the apprenticeship course. And this is designed to finally, for the industry and for the sector, open the door and provide a recognized pathway for new talent to come into the sector. Because as we know, many of us have transitioned from, as certainly as I have, from other careers and other industries into this sector. Mm -hmm. And finally, we now have a pathway that allows people straight out of uh, learning, straight out of education to come into the sector. And that we felt was very important. And that's great that that's now been set up. The second is the certificate course, which is uh, really just for those starting out, those who are uh, new to the sector perhaps, uh, have got their first job and are, are learning most of the foundation uh, uh, principles within the sector. And then after that, there's the diploma, which is uh, for people who are maybe head of a particular type of fundraising, have got several years ex experience, or are even head of fundraising or aspiring to be a head of fundraising. Then there's the advanced diploma, which is taught at master's level. And this takes about a year to complete and is designed for those who are senior level heads of development, CEOs, and, and the, the more senior of among us in the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. The syllabus is broken down into four models. Uh, so you've got developing a stakeholder-focused organization, integrated marketing communications, strategic fundraising management, and then developing a philanthropic society. And just for those of us who are, certainly I'm in, I include myself in that, for those of us who are a little bit exam shy, uh, the grading is actually based on our or on your performance across seven assignments. Mm -hmm. And those assignments will range from a thousand words to 5,000 words. 
Thing being, though, that that doesn't really tell your listeners much about the course and what it will do for them. Mm. So the shorthand analogy that I always use to explain the course is that currently when asked, where do you live? With your knowledge base, the best possible, most specific answer you can give is our galaxy, the Milky Way. Not Mm. very specific, really. But the course improves your analysis, your analytical abilities, and your decision-making abilities to the point that when you're asked the same question after the course, you'd simply respond with a postcode. And so much more specific, much more precise in your delivery of information. That analogy is good for illustrating how much more precise your understanding becomes on why things are happening within your organization how they're impacting your fundraising, your your organization performance, and most importantly, what can be done to improve the outcomes. The course effectively transforms your thinking and your thinking models, your ability to use academic theory and research to understand the world around you and then make much better, more informed decisions. Just then for this, the second part of your question, uh, so for me as a consultant, it's greatly improved my ability to help clients. And we do it in a way of you know, realizing their strategies, be that on an operational or a particular product line, uh, in a particular uh, shaping of their social investment and th- those goals. We do this by really getting to the heart of the issue and identifying the best way forward. So certainly that's that's what it has done for me. And I think that's what others get out of the course. But if I remember correctly, you did it too. So how did it help you? I, I did. Yeah. I mean, well, I think it, it, it kind of in a profound way, really, I suppose. So when I came to I'd been fundraising for probably around 11 years or so. And this was back in I think it was 2017, wasn't it? That we uh, mm. we did it. And, and I guess that's right. I guess. I mean, it's it's hard to pin down in some ways. I, I still look at the the texts and the the guidance that we got from uh, from Adrian and Jen and uh, and I find that useful in in when I when I'm tackling a problem at work for example I I sometimes refer to you know those kind of models and again it's it's kind of it's the way you think about things isn't it it's the yeah. way you kind of it's it's like the position the grounding that you kind of you find before you start to deal with some of the problems or the challenges in in your job and and of course and there's a lot actually a lot of the stuff that really resonated with me particularly was around when we're talking about uh, marketing and there's so mm. much that I've just I think it's the same for a lot of people um so many people that I've met you know when when people get into the sector especially in fundraising certainly my journey was really just jumping into stuff you know and, and certainly you know starting out in kind of events and not really knowing that much just having a go you know picking up bits yeah. and pieces of knowledge here and there yeah and kind of feeling like I kind of knew stuff because of that but then there are all these gaps that you, and again it's those kind of three stages of knowing that they talk about isn't there there's the kind of not knowing you don't know and I was kind of in, <laughs> I was kind of in that space for a lot of the stuff I remember you know, sitting down and and um, I'm not. Is it still? Does it still work in the same way? That, you know, we were having kind of face to face kind of classes um, a, f- a few times over the year, and then uh, over over a few days, weren't we? They were kind of so. We did. I think we did it in two blocks back in 2017. Right. Yeah. Now, because of COVID, we've changed the model right. to to make it uh, uh, better at distance learning, and actually, it's working very well. We've just uh, last week we did. Uh, almost one of the final blocks of this year's cohort for the advanced diploma. Mm -hmm. 
and just and and it's great with uh, for the advanced diploma you have relatively smaller groups of, of of individuals like when we did it we were was it 18 i think yeah we have transitioned to for at least for now uh, and i suppose you could argue for the foreseeable future until things are more certain mm-hmm. uh, a online in person shall we say via mm-hmm. zoom format but yeah. we're keeping it short we don't do f- like we would in person full day sessions because yeah. th- that's a little bit brain frying uh so we've broken it out into smaller blocks and that represent the, the units of learning and also don't allow too much gap between the learning and the doing of the assignment mm-hmm. and actually the feedback from students is very good in mm-hmm. fact arguably in some ways it's better because you get to piecemeal each of the units rather than like you and I did bombarded mm. for five full days yeah and like that like, it was exhausting wasn't you, it, it was, this yeah. is still challenging and yes uh you, you sometimes you see people looking at you going sorry can you say that again please <laughs> and that's the great thing about this that it is very much an interactive group learning mm. uh, and also the principle of just in time learning is applied and yeah. so just briefly to to cover that uh, you'll be familiar with it but for your listeners mm-hmm. it's the principle that we're not if you get something we're not going to spend uh, uh, time on it we're not sure. going to read through something for the sake of covering it if everybody gets it we're going to move on we're going to go deeper we're going to explore more we're going to get more out of it mm-hmm. and that's uh, and that's the really enjoyable part of this because if i'm doing my job properly i get to enjoy it too because not only uh, are we covering off the basis of basic learning, we're getting into exploring and I'm getting to see how other people interact with the, the concepts that we're talking about. And this notion of, as you're very familiar with, the basic, well, at least it sounds basic to begin with, this idea of describing your problem, mm-hmm. analyzing your problem and evaluating your problem, mm-hmm. and then coming up with your recommendations. And while I can say that in a sentence and you having done the course will know what I mean. That process is actually very involved and requires all manner of reference to academic theory and everything else. What I love about what you said earlier on is that you still refer to the texts and you still refer to the models that were covered on the course now, almost five years later. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be on the, the faculty for the course now. I still refer to the texts. I do. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, I would challenge anybody, uh, with maybe the exception of Adrian Sargent, <laughs> to know all of them offhand. Yeah. And there is such a wealth of information. There's so many useful tools and approaches to break down an operational or a HR or a donor or any kind of problem Mm -hmm. and come out with arguably the best solution available to you Mm -hmm. uh, is, is fascinating and fantastic. And, and it changes every time depending on the, on the situation. So that's why uh, you, in a way you need to keep referring to those texts Mm -hmm. because that's, that's your library of, of uh, knowledge and of tools. And working out which one's going to work in a particular situation rather than just, oh, let me, I'll, I'll take a punt at doing it this way.
Yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, you know, and, and that's one thing I'll say about this course. And I know this sounds like a kind of we're pushing the course, but it's 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 <laughs> it was very it was it was very interesting. It was fascinating in many ways. And I think also because it because of the, the practical aspects of the work that you do in that course. Um, mm. So, for example, the, the assignments, they were all relating to you know your experience that in some cases the the charities or the you know the, the charities you're either working with or working for and so there were things you could apply there and then i was doing that mm. in, in when that's I was, right yeah you know which was really useful but equally it teaches you that that kind of muscle memory of how to tackle those problems as you move with your career and i, I thought that was really interesting and i i guess and also it was it was lovely to be to meet you to meet the other candidates Absolutely. you know came into to that uh, place so uh, so yeah it was, it was really really great course and i think anyone listening that has the means to to consider it should should probably do so well i mean to to address your point because you're like you're right some this is not a a, a promo <laughs> a piece for the course it's you and I having been on the course discussing it in the context of the importance of learning and education in the sector. Mm. And I think exactly what you've just said in terms of where everybody was coming from, from all over the world to participate in this course. The reason we're talking about this course, it is in, certainly in my opinion, by far, and that's without me being a tutor involved, I would say the same otherwise, mm. uh, by far the most advanced, most uh, uh, capable course in the sector globally. Mm. And so, therefore, by definition, if we want to talk about the value and the the, the benefits or the, the need for education, and training in the not-for-profit sector, by definition, we talk about this course. So, Mark, many charities and voluntary groups are struggling to raise funds at the moment amidst unprecedented demand for charity services and support for their beneficiaries. Why is training for fundraising and other charity staff more needed than ever? And how can charities weigh up the pros and cons of the cost of this at this particularly challenging time? Wow. Long question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, that is not only a great question, it's a huge question. Uh, <laughs> let me try and break that one down. But it does, it very much follows on from what we were just saying. And, and I do think it's a great question, Sam, uh, because it gets to the very heart of one of the sector's greatest issues. And I won't go off piste on you here, but I do believe the sector's greatest issue is permission to invest in being better at doing good. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, that has been an issue for quite some time. Coming back to the, the training side of things, put simply, training helps people and in turn organizations to perform better. And we are in a time of great challenge. There's change, there's experimentation, there's evolution uh, of everyone, regardless of sector. And everyone is having to do this. They're adapting and growing in, in ways uh, that requires learning and investing in people or new people investing in better processes and skills. And the way I've looked at that through like observing it over the years, basically evolve or die. And 
that's that's a necessity in times of change. Now, fine, we are in a very acute example of that that notion, that process at the moment. But in other times, we are still evolving. We're just maybe doing it a little bit more slowly. We're doing it less visually or less dramatically. The principle still applies, and therefore the need still applies. Businesses around the world are investing and adapting to meet this new paradigm, but they always invest to meet new changing market demands and so on. Why should it be any different for not-for-profits? In my view, like for far too long, the third sector has been expected to find its way in the dark using candles while businesses are investing in 8,000 lumen bulbs for their car parks. Yeah. Doesn't, to me, it doesn't really seem a logical balance. I'm not saying one is more worthy or better than the other. I'm just saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander type thing. Mm. Um, and we are very much a services sector. We provide services to our donors just as much as we provide services to our beneficiaries. These services can only be as good as the people delivering them. And there is always room for improvement. And that's why we have to invest. That's why we must invest. So then in terms of the, the pros and cons part of your question, I believe it is important, and I see us as custodians of donors' philanthropy, mm. that we weigh up the different uses of funds and ensure that they're being allocated properly. And they're being allocated to activities that will generate the best long-term value in terms of helping the beneficiary uh, and progressing the donor's philanthropic intent. And I think that those two things can be done in harmony together. Uh, and it is the job of experienced, skilled, well-educated, not-for-profit staffers to decide what that constitutes and, and how we do that investing well. We might at some point need to, need to do it in strategic planning. Other times it might be investing in training staff. It might be making a process more efficient, uh, doing a donor survey to ensure that our donors are happy and that they're getting what they need from the service that we're providing mm. or that we are taking our services online. Or it might simply just be after proper evaluation, doubling down on doing more of the great work that we already do and making sure that that is being done well for our beneficiaries. There are two great examples, I believe, uh, in recent times that I've seen of organizations doing this. One would be uh, a, an organization that I worked with called Chiltern Music Therapy. Mm -hmm. And actually the other in a similar vein is the Chartered Institute. Uh, the reason that I say this is that they were both highly, very different organizations, but both highly dependent on in-person meeting for the delivery of their mission. And pre-pandemic, that was pretty much everything that they did in person. And rather than pulling back, they actually, with minimal investment and a whole lot of work, completely transformed their offering in a very short space of time, adapted to the new environment, and in so doing are actually now arguably Better offering better value and ensuring more value for their supporters and their beneficiaries, mm. and will do so for the longer term. Now, in the in this particular case, it's effectively taking in person online. But if 
we were 100% restricted funding or 100% stuck in our, our mode of delivery and our boards or our donors were saying, no, we don't want any investment in operational activity, that would not have been possible. Mm. Those beneficiaries would have been left abandoned. Those members wouldn't get their education programs and so on. And so it must be for the skilled, educated, not-for-profit staff to decide where is the best area for investment. And often that will be in training. Despite the challenges that we've had uh, in these times, we are seeing that many organizations are now choosing to invest in the training of their people. And actually, course numbers continue to be very, very strong. And so that's, uh, that's encouraging to see, not so much from an institute perspective, but from a lay of the land in terms of the industry, in terms of how organizations are behaving in challenging times, mm. there's a commitment to the integrity of the organization and of the, the sector. We hear a lot anecdotally about how charities have you know, the pivoted is the it will pivot is the, the mm. word that's being used a lot, isn't it? But, you know, being able to pivot given this crisis, I wonder, you know, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, with the pandemic being kind of a almost a starting pistol for change in a lot of organisations because they've had to. It, do you think is that something that organisations can maybe learn from when as we get into kind of hopefully, you know, outside of the at the other end of this pandemic? Should we be trying to remember the pandemic as a trigger for change? And should we should we kind of use that in our philosophy, organizational philosophy around pivoting and, and having that as part of our you know progressive kind of change, looking kind of thinking about how we can change again, you know, the next step up to, to deliver? Yes. To, to the short answer to your question is yes, but I think perhaps in a in a different way than what you're saying may suggest mm -hmm. so, so first off uh, as you say uh, uh the, this d this need to change it goes back to what i was saying earlier on about basically evolve or die mm. but we are by definition not by definition by certainly my experience we are broadly speaking and not uh, not casting everybody with the same brush mm. but we are broadly speaking a, a reactive industry we evolve and we have great uh, innovation, but when it comes to things like crisis, we are reactive. We, and this is a little bit chicken and egg in terms of investing in our capacity and our resource, we have not had the comfort or the bandwidth to be able to sit back and say, okay, what happens when a global pandemic hits? What are we going to do as an organization then? What are the other things that are going to happen? If we look at uh, funding for organizations, for example, in Ireland, when the government made a decision to cut back on their government funding for organizations that massively cut budgets overnight, mm. we weren't prepared for that either. Now, what's the next mass event that is going to, for want of a better word, catch us off guard? And how do we prepare for that now? And it might not be government spending. It might not be a pandemic. It might be a cultural shift. It might be an attitude of society that changes, that suddenly it might be an entire sector, it might be part of the sector that is 
um, suddenly finds itself in a situation that it's not prepared for. And so I'd love to see uh, the sector become, have the, be given the, the, the tools, be given the, the capacity, the resources needed, which it currently is starved of, to plan ahead, to become more, uh, to become less reactive, less transactional, and, and more long-term thinking. Because fundraising is not, or at least it should not be, rooted in quick wins. It's about sustainable impact on the causes we care and work for. And therefore, as long as we are not threatening the immediate survival of our organizations or our beneficiaries, the best way uh, for us to, to progress is look at a longer term picture and weigh up the decisions that we have to make and properly evaluate those options with recognized metrics and evidence and prioritize the directions that provide the best social returns, or the, I should say the best societal returns, and do so over the longer term. Obviously, that doesn't help a fundraiser who's desperately trying to make their, their target for this year and uh, this year's fundraising goal, but it will, that approach, I promise, will result in a better future for the organization and the beneficiaries. So it's, it's this kind of the willingness to uh, reflect, to plan ahead and to, uh, to resource the plan, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And I, it's well and good and easy for you and I were for me to sit here chatting to you and say things like that. Mm. And I can almost visual I have an image of a fundraiser who's, again, pressed with a, a goal that they've been given that they need to, re uh, to, to reach, mm. looking and saying, or listening and saying, are you crazy? I mean, that's, that's a million miles away from my reality of what I'm trying to, uh, to deliver here. And so I think it has to be at a particular level within our organizations to say that we're not about to stick our finger in the dam and change overnight, but we can gradually move towards a more evidence-based approach to our fundraising. And we can start to encourage longer-term thinking in our relationships by simply beginning to discuss it, by engaging both uh, internally within our organizations, with our accounting departments, with our marketing departments, with our donors, with our beneficiaries, and talking about how we begin to look at things over a, a longer term so that we are less reactive and therefore maybe distracted rather than focused and, and singularly focused on a bigger picture that uh, we can have a greater impact on by that longer term focus. And, and for those listeners who, you know, maybe from a very small organizations, maybe a, uh, you know, solely a group of volunteers as charity chat is or, or mm. uh, you know, I suppose for, for them, um, it's, it's about kind of identifying kind of what it is they need and then maybe evolving to a point where they can they can attain that as part of this uh, learning. Um, yeah, look, absolutely. I think the, the principles hold true and true for 
every organization, regardless of size or makeup of, of people. Let's, as you say, talk about a small organization that is in, staffed entirely by volunteers with very minimal resources. That almost makes a, a stronger argument for this need to focus long-term and not be distracted by potential quick wins that are pulling you away from what was originally identified as the core need or the core focus. Mm. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, uh, able to take advantage of opportunities. So I've, you know, I've worked for a lot of smaller charities. I've worked, you know, yeah. as a volunteer for a lot of charities, and I suppose, you know, the one, the one overriding thing, the one con- consistent thing, is that certainly within the small organisations I've been part of, there is that passion to do good for the beneficiaries there's a sense of purpose that you know if I'm honest in some of the larger organizations I've worked with it, it I haven't always had that in the same way because you know you're you're more far removed from the actual uh, the work on the ground but with these small organizations um making big generalizations here but um I get the sense that there is a kind of a there's a passion to see the work done and actually seeing the work done but then you know we, we talked about it before there is maybe a risk that we're so close to the cold face that it's hard to take a step back and even for uh, leaders of these small organizations for boards of trustees to take that kind of strategic long-term approach which might see uh you know uh, kind of uh, and then a need for training a need for evolution of how they do things should they be bringing those kind of conversations then presumably into the boardroom and, and to kind of putting time aside to talk about training and you know for for themselves as much as any volunteers or staff they have yeah look, absolutely i think in the context of smaller particularly voluntary led organizations the 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 need for or the argument for effective use of resources is even stronger because they are so scarce and, and precious and so making good use of um, of a volunteer's time to ensure that it is driving forward on the cause that everybody is there to support and is doing so in the best possible way, mm. then uh, that is a worthwhile conversation to have. And it's, it's important that we follow Pareto's rule in terms of our activities and spend 20% of our time Mm -hmm. making sure that the other 80% is going to be used as effectively as possible Mm -hmm. because we are limited in terms of our volunteer time and and that time that can be devoted or making sure that whatever that person is doing, they're doing and they're enabled to do to the best of their ability. And I suppose, you know, examples of that, and I've, I've experienced this myself, you know, as a volunteer, uh, reaching out to a local company to ask to Skillshare on how to deal with social media, for example, and then building through that, you know, building a knowledge and expertise in social media uh, for a volunteer, and then also building a closer relationship with that company who then goes on to become a, a supporter of your work. I suppose there are these opportunities that, organizations can spend that that time thinking about and and devising yeah and i think it comes back to a point made earlier on about the balancing act and that again with smaller organizations with limited resources that decision of what opportunities to take 
And sometimes it is actually better to say no. And how do we know which ones to take and which ones to uh, politely decline? Mm. I would say that probably as important in a small organization as in a big is this need for taking a step back and producing a strategy and producing some of key objectives that are very clear for everybody and everybody has agreed and signed up to. And so then on a more day-to-day basis, as and when something comes in, it is easier to evaluate to say, does this advance me towards my four key objectives for this year? And if it doesn't, well, then we don't do it. Or we we put it down to a, if we have time, we'll do it. But we have to prioritize the things that advance us towards our key objectives. And those key objectives have ultimately trickled down from the organization purpose, the mission, and how we agree that mission is going to be fulfilled. So there's often a focus from funders, supporters and the general public on the costs to a charity that aren't seen as directly helping the charity beneficiaries. Investment in staff, CEO pay, administrative costs are all part of this. How should charities be talking about training, both internally and externally? And is there a case to be made that charity staff need training in order to get the most out of their remuneration? Yeah, Sam, look, absolutely. Uh, It feeds on from what we were just talking about in terms of of investing in and how to make the right decisions about investing in your organization. Take, uh, as an example, take an eye doctor in Africa who's treating the, what is it, 26 million plus people uh, that have preventable blindness. Mm. Unless for the sake of argument, say, they're paid 40,000 a year. And they are curing about 50% of their patients that they see. Now, I give you 10,000 to invest. So you have a choice. Would you prefer to spend the Mm 10,000 on 25% of a second doctor's salary for one year Mm -hmm. or spend the same 10,000 training your first doctor in new techniques that will ultimately increase their success rate to, let's say, 80% Mm -hmm. of effectiveness of their operations? for the next 20 years of their career. Mm. It's a total no-brainer. And so to me, that's a great example of making it real, to begin with at least, for donors on why investing makes sense and is actually good use of their funding. Mm. The argument is no different for the operational fundraising staff in an organization. Whether you're training existing staff or paying more for more qualified staff, you are investing in the organization's ability to impact the cause. I actually argue that we have an obligation to our donors to invest in our organization capacity. So internally, as long as you're kind of unified in your purpose, which is less common than you might think, when different people have different ideas of how things are gonna be done, which comes back to our planning and our objectives point made earlier, it's a relatively easy evaluation decision process. You gather the evidence and you go with whatever gives you the best return on investment. The harder part is agreeing on what goes into and how you measure that return on investment, Mm. which again comes back to the planning process. And if that's agreed beforehand, you have much greater clarity and uh, unified direction 
in the day-to-day operations of the organization. So you might decide, well, will a new CRM system or a second doctor or an upskilled fundraiser who's going to increase income by 20% year on year have a greater long-term impact on the cause? That really depends on where your organization is in its journey and what you're trying to achieve. But that is a conversation you can discuss, ideally across all areas of the organization and come to agreement. And that way, everybody can be behind it. On an external level, uh, as a sector, we do need to become better at explaining the how and the why of what we do. We need to get better at engaging in richer two-way conversations, uh, conversations that confirm the beneficiary as the priority and explain to donors why there is actually value for them in what we are doing. And we need to show how our decisions are well-informed and constitute good judgment and are appropriate in pursuit of the charitable mission of the organization. And we need to show how smarter donors are supporting smarter organizations. Mm. There's an issue here, though. And the issue arises when people, or the public, I should say, don't see or understand or don't value how the investment impacts the cause. Mm. If you think about not-for-profits as providing a service, they are very high in what are known as credence attributes. In other words, qualities of the charity service and their benefits to the donor are very difficult for the donors to observe. So it's very difficult for them to assess or value the utility of of the giving Mm. or the, the benefit that the... The, the beneficiary is going to receive. If, you, if we go back to the example of upskilling a doctor to increase mission effectiveness, that's a pretty straightforward to understand proposition. Mm. But if you go to a donor and you say, well, look, we want to invest in our organization-wide understanding and adoption of integrated marketing communications. Okay, why? Well, because that'll help us to improve the donor's brand experience which improves recognition. And then that leads on to value and loyalty, which it goes on and increases income and ability to impact the cause. Mm. That's a much more opaque, much more complex equation for a donor, particularly external to the organization to understand. Also in fundraising in particular, and this, this is a real challenge, realizing that charities would not raise anywhere near as much money without fundraisers on staff Mm -hmm. can be a very bitter pill for a donor to swallow. And the reason for that is ultimately to an extent, it robs them of their altruism. It makes Mm -hmm. them feel that they wouldn't have come up with this themselves. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Right. So if you think about it in that context, it's almost your, by being professional at being a fundraiser, Mm. you're you're robbing them of that that self-intent that that utility that they've they've come to this decision themselves and so i think in our conversations we need to somewhat reposition ourselves as fundraisers and we are a service provider we are there to serve the donor and Mm. if we can do that and we can become and seem to become custodians of their support we'll actually do a lot better in terms of of that ongoing conversation
very very well put around this notion of you know the 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 role of a fundraiser as we see it in the sector being somebody to go out there and raise the funds um versus the the perception that that funders may have and individual donors may have who you know are that they're they're coming to an organization they want to do good in the world there's an organization that does that so they're going to proactively donate and i suppose there's a disconnect there isn't there as you as you put it so so eloquently um that's that you know the in some cases the donors will see the fundraisers as well is it fair to say that in some cases the donors kind of don't understand the point of the fundraiser yeah absolutely right so there there's actually a slight misalignment between at least the perception and the purpose of the individual relative to the fundraiser Mm-hmm. And the, the motivations are not quite perfectly aligned with the, the positive values and ambitions that many not-for-profit organizations have. Mm. Um, it's what leads to this deeply rooted and regularly reinforced, uh, what I call a, a well, it's a, it is a moral myopia, but I call it a munificent moral myopia, and that prohibits the uh the willingness to invest in our nonprofits and their people and it is and essentially because the those people out there think well you know i've i've just got my mates to help me raise a load of money for this charity why should we pay somebody professionally to do that i can do it myself yeah absolutely and this goes back to the whole dan pelota talk mm. in what was it 2013 yeah. and this uh, this notion of a very successful bake sale that raises 20 pounds mm. and is done on a volunteer basis uh, at zero cost, as opposed to the 20 million that's raised on a professional basis, mm. which is more important, the efficiency of how we raise the funds mm. or what the funds can be used to, to affect an impact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess we probably we probably both say that the latter certainly, and I may, may, most people probably would, wouldn't they? That the kind of the idea of investing, you know, X to achieve Y. If if um, if Y is bigger, then then X can be bigger, and, and even if it's a, a higher proportion of Y, if the overall net income um, is is greater, then uh, then that's the that's the market's follow because we're all in the in the business, and funders and donors are in the business, or you know, they they want to affect change, and so do we. And therefore, that puts us all in the same camp. Well, yes. However, this uh, munificent moral myopia actually prevents us from doing that. Mm. And I've just written an article for the Journal of Philanthropy and Marketing, which looks at this exact issue in the context of CEO salaries. Mm. Mm. And we can look at uh, a variety of other industries uh, through the lens of conventional marketing theory, uh, and this notion of uh, people don't purchase the power drill, they purchase the hole that the power drill will provide. It's yeah. a research by Theodore Levitt. Mm-hmm. And we're okay with that when it comes to a commercial context. Mm-hmm. We're happy with, there are many uh, uh, conscious and subconscious decisions that go into that purchase. It's not just about the, the hole, it's, uh, it's about the the quality of the product it's about the brand it's about the the color maybe it's about mm. well, will i be able to show this off and boast to my friends about my the cool status. new power drill yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. now many of those same decisions go into our support of a charity 
to to try and flip this notion of it's the whole of the power drill and not the power drill, we're not buying the malaria net. We're we're buying disease prevention. Sure. However, when we're buying commercial products, we tend not to get into this whole questioning of the the value of the power drill company CEO and whether or not they should be paid as much as they are or if they should receive less salary and actually therefore my power drill will cost me less or maybe the workers on the production line shouldn't be wearing the expensive protective clothing they should wear their own clothing and that should make my power drill cost less we don't get into that in the commercial context but we very much do get into that in the not-for-profit world and we we automatically equate lower salary and less protection for our our line workers with cheaper drills. It's interesting because I'm and again it's it's essentially uh, blurring the the lines a bit here. But you know we we spoke last week with uh, Tristan Blythe um, regarding. Right. Uh, ethical uh, or responsible investment, ethical investment. And then that kind of, you know, there's a little bit of uh, kind of thinking about kind of ethical, um, we've talked about ethical consumerism in the past. Do, is yes. there any kind of sense, is it too much of a leap to think that maybe if you are, you know, buying a product, if it's an ethical product, it's going to cost more in a lot of cases. Similarly, you know, can, do you think that could kind of radiate into our sector and the, the voices around uh, our sector talking about the investment in, charities the investment in people um and and do you think that 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 could be potentially a direction that uh, that society might be moving in i think we've got some milestones along the way that we need to reach first mm-hmm. and one of those is addressing this uh moral myopia that i talk about mm. and the second is getting a better understanding of of value because arguably, if we use the right metrics, we could make a case for the civil sector or civil society as having a much greater contribution to society than it is currently recognized as having or as doing. Mm. And if we are better at measuring the value that we produce, well, then arguably we can justify the need for greater support greater investment because the return is greater. And so how would I equate that to the ethics of of purchase? Ultimately, yes, because you can make an ethical argument why your money is spent better in one place than the other, and it's doing more good in in a strict sense or in in a very simplistic sense of the, the ethics and the different ethics models. But I think we, long before we get to that point, there's a simple uh, plus minus accounting. So if we, if we look at our triple bottom line, let's properly measure across all industry, across all sectors, what our contribution or detraction is from that bottom line, and then do a comparison. And I would like to think that even down to the smallest of organizations, the value that people or donors are getting for their support would increase significantly. There's a a great uh, paper that just came out uh, not so long ago from uh, PBE, whereby uh, they measure, for example, if you support the the one pound spent on a child in 
during school who is having difficulty uh, and that support is provided, that child can go on to create a, I think it's a fourfold value increase for themselves on each pound spent. Wow. And so in terms of return on investment, mm. the, the potent, if, we me- if we measure properly, both in terms of uh, our, not just our financial production, but our ethical, our moral, our societal production from all of our different organizations, it will be, uh, um, it will be a great first step in the right direction. Not much easier said than done, though, because obviously lots of organizations uh, do things and work in different ways in different scales. Mm -hmm. And so on a practical level uh, for your listeners in terms of uh, uh, better measuring how it is that they're going to uh, uh, or better measuring their their impact, I would talk to their donors and ask them what is important to them, Mm -hmm. what what measurement makes them feel like they are having an impact on the cause? What do they need to know to reassure them that good work is being done? And have that two-way conversation, understand the how and the why of the way that work is being delivered, and then report it. And then you will have a greater sense of value by the donor that their funds are being well used, and then they are usually more inclined, at least, to, uh, to give more. Mark Carrigan, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Sam, my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. A big thank you to Mark Carrigan. We covered a lot of ground, but knowing Mark's many interests and areas of expertise, we hope to have him on the show again soon. Mark spoke about the need to evolve or die. For me, this is synonymous with a learning mindset and points to the need for training in order to ensure that fundraisers have the skills and knowledge that they need, not only to deliver against their charity's objectives, but also as part of a sea change in donor thinking. It strikes me that the fundamental first step with any training or desire for improvement must be reflection, to reflect on who we are, where we are, what we know and what we need are some of the questions that we, our organisations and the sector as a whole need to have in our minds on a regular basis. Not to overindulge it or risk analysis paralysis, but to seek out ways of understanding the situation we find ourselves in identify those around us who can support our work and listen to them first and foremost so that we can go on to build long-term successful relationships which really is the name of the game. It's not to say that you should change everything you do every year. When things work, keep doing them. But if you're doing the same thing year in, year out, well, we should all be reflecting on why we do what we do and whether there are other ways of doing it or indeed doing something altogether different. As Mark said, we need to get better at engaging in richer two-way conversations that confirm the beneficiary as the priority and explains the value for the donor in supporting our causes. Too often, and as touched upon in various conversations that we've had on Charity Chat in the past, including episode 119 where we spoke to Andrew Perkis OBE about the next Charity Commission chair, the court of public opinion is too often driving charity policy. 
In this case, we talked about how the public don't see and understand the value of investment. Proof of this is in the most charity annual reviews that you'll read, or records on the Charity Commission, which really seem to fear explaining remuneration and investment in staff and training. Part of this problem may be because in many cases charities are only offering credence attributes which make it difficult for the donors to observe and understand the value of professional fundraisers that they come into contact with. Mark also made what I think is a fascinating point that realising that charities would not raise as much money without professional fundraisers is a bitter pill for some donors because it robs them of their altruism. The idea that they are the ones choosing to support charities, how they do so and at what level, rather than seeking the professional support of fundraisers to help them maximise their gift and ultimately increase the impact of their charitable support, which in many cases is the case. In some cases, donors may see the fundraiser as superfluous. We need to get better at explaining the how and the why of what we do. Should we, can we, reposition ourselves from fundraisers to custodians of donor support? Would that help? It's all food for thoughts. But as Mark said, we're broadly speaking a reactive industry, certainly when it comes to things like a crisis. Perhaps now, with the wake-up call that we've all had, the increased need for so many of our charity beneficiaries and a political scenario that is far from reassuring to many of us and those we exist to support. Perhaps now, among all of these challenges and stresses that we face daily, perhaps now we must begin a new chapter in our lives by reflecting, seeking new skills or honing existing ones and taking pride in the value of our service, the power of our work and the ambition of our vision for a better world for all. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now that's it from me keep on doing what you can speak to you soon cheerio bye bye